Okay, good morning, Tara. Good morning. When everything seems to be going wrong in life, when one bit bad thing happens after the next, you might hear someone say a phrase, when it rains, it pours. You heard that phrase? Does anyone know where that phrase comes from? When it rains, it pours. It comes from a salt company. Morton Salt in the early 1900s to try to sell salt saying that in all temperatures and weather, even when it's raining, it's not gonna clump, it's gonna come out of the salt shaker. Just fun fact for you. But that's not what we think of when we say when it rains, it pours. We think of hard circumstances that just seem to be getting worse and worse, where there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. And you may have found yourself in a situation already in your life where you've asked the question, kind of a grim question, can it get any worse than this? Or you may find yourself in the future asking a similar question, when it's not just raining, but pouring, can it get any worse? So, <laughs> a little bit of background. We're, we're getting into Ruth. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about our journey in arriving at Ruth. Because for a few years, we went through the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is all about King Jesus revealing the kingdom of God. He did it in his words. He did it in his works. He did it in his life, his death, and his resurrection. The king revealed and inaugurated the kingdom of God. Then we turned our attention to so how do we live out being kingdom members? What do we do? How do we, how do we live in this world? How do we treat each other as part of the kingdom members, as the body of Christ? And so we looked at several New Testament commands in our One Another series. How are we supposed to live it out? Well, there's commands for us. He tells us how to live it out. We serve one another. We forgive one another. We're hospitable and devoted to one another. We encourage and exhort one another. We comfort one another. But we talked about how the motive for all of those one another commands has to be, as it says in 1 Peter 4, above all, love one another. Cherish, value each other, work for each other's best interest. Love has to be the motive. And that leads us to Ruth. Why? Because we're going to dig a little deeper into love. What is love? What does it look like? What does biblical love look like? And so we're looking at Ruth, a case study of love. We live in a world that so often either misunderstands or misrepresents what love is. And so we're going to look at an expert performance of love. Ruth has, in her life that we're going to read about, lived an expert life of selfless love. And so we're starting Ruth today, and we're going to be going through it for the next 10 weeks in the fall. And as we look at her life, I want us to be inspired. And most of all, I want us to be drawn to the same God of love that she knew and she served. So before we jump into the passage today, I want to talk a little bit about the artwork. Um, so for this series... Jen Wilson from Terra Nova North Adams put together the, the design and the artwork for Ruth. And I want to point out, she, she wrote um, four elements that she wants to draw our attention to. So I'm going to read through some of what she wrote in the series. 
in the artwork. So first of all, the first element is the silhouette of Ruth. And you see the silhouette on the right side, the hood and the silhouette of Ruth. And for the silhouette, she intentionally did not put any distinguishable characteristics in her silhouette to point out the fact that Ruth lived a life in which she almost disappears to herself in order to selflessly love, sacrifice herself um, for the sake of others, specifically for Naomi. And so there's no distinguishable features, characteristics in the silhouette of Ruth that we see on the right. So that's the first element. The second one is called the J-curve. And this term, the J-curve, was coined by an author named Paul Miller, who wrote a commentary on the book of Ruth called A Loving Life. And the J-curve we see on the scarf from the silhouette of Ruth on the left. So starting from left to right, as it goes down, it sort of, it sort of looks like the letter J. And he talks about this J-curve as a biblical pattern he sees of love, of selfless love. The descent has to do with dying to ourselves. And that often requires circumstances beyond our control and outside, and not what we want, and that forces us to either choose, am I gonna give in to bitterness, despair, all of that, or am I gonna die to myself? Am I going to uh, trust the Lord in the circumstances that he's provided into my life? Am I gonna die to myself? So that's the descent. And then the, the bottom part of it is, is the valley of the shadow of death. We don't know how long we're gonna go through that circumstance, that season, in which God is calling us to die to ourselves, to die to our will. But as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we wait on the Lord, God does what he always does. In his time, he exalts the lowly. He lifts us up. He restores us. He brings life, resurrection, and that's the ascent. And the ascent is always higher than where we started at the beginning. We're always better off for going through that season, that time, that death that God walks with us and brings us through on the other side, the J-curve. This J-curve or journey of love is seen in the life of Ruth. Third element is the bookends. Uh, on either side of Ruth, we have bookends. And those are added there because Ruth is often overlooked. It's a small four-chapter book. It's sandwiched between Judges and 1 Samuel. You have the patriarchs before Ruth. You have King David come right after Ruth. And often the book of Ruth can be overlooked. But we don't want it to be because it is a beautiful story of selfless love. Beautiful story. And so we're going to take our time and go through the book. So third element, the book ends. And then finally, the fourth one is the grain. Agriculture and grain play a recurring role throughout the book of Ruth, from the opening famine in the beginning of the book, to the provision of food, to the kinsman-redeemer relationship, the fields, the threshing floors, and the culminating feast at the end of the story. Grain and agriculture play a big part of the story. And so not only are the stalks of grain shown, but the color palette is drawn from the golden browns of grain and the verdant greens of the earth. She mentions how brown can be the color of famine and green can be the color of abundance and both famine and abundance are part of this story. And then finally, as a bonus, there are hearts hidden at the top of the stalks of grain because love is, is the main part of the story of Ruth. So that's the art for the series. The art that we have for Terra Nova is always intentional and is revealing 
um, what the scripture is trying to teach us. So we heard the, the first seven verses of Ruth. We got the artwork for the series. Now let's get to the main idea of our passage today, which is this. When our lives fall apart, there is still hope. When our lives fall apart, there is still hope. We certainly see that in this story and we see the reason why because of God's involvement in Ruth's life. But when our lives fall apart, there is still hope. So here's where we're gonna go with that. In the first five verses, we see the death of dreams. We're gonna talk about the death of our dreams in verses one through five. And then secondly, the choice to continue on in verses six through seven. What do these three women do after losing her son and, the, and their two husbands? The choice to continue on. So that's where we're going. First of all, the death of our dreams in verses one through five. I see in verses one through five, both the context of the book of Ruth, we see that in verses one to two, and then it moves on to talk about the catastrophe that took place in verses three to five. So the context we read is in verses one to two. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So what's the context? Tells us in verse one, in the days when the judges ruled. And if we know anything about the book of Judges, we know this is a time period of instability, of unfaithfulness, a time that it says multiple times, twice in the book, a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound at all familiar? It characterizes the culture in which, in which we live, where what, what feels right to me, to us, what seems to pay off in the temporary, those are gonna be what I base my decisions off of. It's, it's, it's what characterizes our culture. Ruth is for us today. In a world where, where promises are broken as much as they're kept, and where decisions are, 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 are made based on feelings and temporary circumstances, Ruth is a book for us to study in this season. So, in the days when the judges ruled, hardship came upon them. It says there in verse one, a famine came in the land. And so they went to sojourn to Moab. So they're in Bethlehem, they're in the promised land. And when hardship came, when a famine struck, this man, Elimelech, from the clan of Bethlehem and the Ephrathites, and his wife, Naomi, decide to leave. And they decide to go to Moab. And we can say that this decision to leave the promised land and to go to Moab, to say it lightly, it would have been frowned upon by the Israelites, by the people of God. A little bit about Moab. In Genesis 19, we see some of the reasons why the Israelites didn't have a great relationship with the Moabites. The Moabites originated from Lot and an incestuous night that he had with one of his daughters. Then, years later, when the Israelites are, are going into the Promised Land, the Moabites do not allow the Israelites to go through. And then on top of that, the king of Moab sends a prophet named Balaam to try to curse the Israelites. And so there's reason after reason why the Israelites would not have a great relationship uh, with the Moabites. 
And yet that's where Naomi and Elimelech decide to go. And we may think, did they plan on staying there long term? Because if you look closely at the text, you see the progression of their stay. In verse 1, it says they sojourned to Moab. So maybe the plan was to go there, to work, to, to, out, to outlast how if the famine is short in, in Bethlehem, get a job, even though they're not going to have the same rights as the citizens in Moab, just this temporary stay. But then it says in verse 2, they remained there, so longer than they expected. But then you get down to verse 4, which we'll get there in a little bit, and it says, and they were there 10 years. So maybe they went temporary, short decision, but it turned into a long-term one. Their roots sunk down. And September seems to be a good time for us. We, we view September as the first day of, the first month of the church calendar, and it could be a good time for us as we read this and we think this short-term decision that, that turned into a long-term one, how often do we make decisions or we start a habit or we change something in our calendar or we, we develop certain relationships or go to certain places thinking it's going to be short-term. I'm just doing this for a brief period. And to think and to evaluate in our own lives, what, are the thi- what is my routine? What are my rhythms and my practices? What's working? What's honoring God in my life and what's not? What are the things that are still going on even though I thought that was just a very temporary decision? And to evaluate those things. They end up staying in Moab. Their roots sink down. And then catastrophe hits in verses 3 to 5. So we get the context. They're in Moab. Time of the judges. And then the catastrophe happens. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Catastrophe. When it says the woman was left, it's talking about Naomi. Naomi is actually the main character of the book of Ruth. She's in the prologue, continues throughout it. She's the main character. And it's focusing on her losses. Yes, there was losses by, from Ruth and from Orpah as well. But it's saying Naomi is left first without her husband. Her husband dies. And then on top of that, it goes from bad to worse. Her two sons pass away. From bad to worse, catastrophe hits. She's in a foreign land, and her family, husband and two sons die, and she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Now, I want to take a second to dig into their names, because names are significant, especially you read through biblical names. There's a reason they're named that name. It often has something to do with an identity or something that happens in their life. There's significance in names, and we could have an interesting conversation today, I think, that still remains to an extent of significance of, of naming. However, let's, let's dig into these, to these names for a second. Ruth means, it's, a, it's a derived from a Hebrew word that means friend, and we're going to see the kind of friend that Ruth is throughout her life in this story. Orpah, her sister, sister-in-law, means fawn or back of the neck. And I'm not sure why that has anything to do with the story, but I thought I'd point it out. Um, also, fun fact, Oprah, like the Oprah, uh, was named after Orpah. Her mother, Oprah's mother, I learned this a couple years ago, wanted to name her after a biblical 
character, and she liked the name. She heard the name or read it, I don't know, but she either heard it incorrectly uh, and changed those two letters around, and so she was named Oprah. But, so you have Ruth, meaning friend, Orpah, meaning fawn, and let me get into some of these other names, because I think it's, there's a message being sent here. Here it is. So Naomi, main character, means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. And she had to leave with her husband, Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And when they leave and they get to Moab, her husband, Elimelech, which means my God is king, dies. So do you see some of the story here? If you put that together, pleasant leaves house of bread because there's no food, and my God is king, dies. (laughs) See the irony here? It's like reality is mocking her, mocking her faith, mocking her identity. It's going from bad to worse. It's not just raining, it's pouring. And this is quite the loss. I have a quote here from A Loving Life. I have a couple of these uh, from Paul Miller's book. He says, Naomi's loss is staggering for anyone in any culture. But in the ancient Near East, for a mother to lose her husband and her sons was the epitome of suffering. So let me give you, he pointed out a, a, a survey that was taken. So hypothetical question was given to American men in a business. And the question was, if you had your mother, your wife, and your daughter in a boat, and the boat begins to sink, and you could only save one of them, who would you rescue? So who do you think most American men would say if their mother, their wife, and their daughter, this can create some conversations and problems later, I'm sure, but I'm just, it's a great analogy, I thought. So, survey. Who do you think most American men would save? (laughs) So in this study, 60% of American men said they would save their daughter. 40% said they would save their wife. And none of them said (laughs) they would save their mother. And I'm pointing this out not to create tension or fights in your families, because then that just gives me more work to do later. But I point this out to say some of the differences in in culture here. Because he points out, in the traditional cultures of the Near East, daughters uh, daughters would marry and leave while their sons would remain, forging a powerful mother-son bond. The sons are a huge part of their life. So Naomi didn't just lose um, part of her life, but a massive part of her life. When that same question was given to Middle Eastern men, apparently close to 90% said they would save their mother. The powerful mother-son bond that's formed. Naomi was living in a living death kind of situation. She has loss after loss after loss. We jump into the story at a very dark time in her life. There's at least five losses that she's incurred that we've read about so far. And there's a list here for you. The first one, food, right? Famine started in Bethlehem. They left. In leaving, they left their home and their relationships and all that they had built till then. They lost that. She loses her husband, Elimelech. She loses both of her sons. What else did she lose? Something that we may overlook, which was extremely important to Israelite clans at the time, and that was continuing their clan continuing their line. Another thing she lost was the chance, it seems, the chance of grandchildren seem absolutely hopeless. 
Here's another quote. One of the families in the oldest clan of Bethlehem, the Ephrathites, has died out. Naomi was left with a fragile, highly vulnerable family. They have no husbands, no fathers, no sons to take a protective role in a male-dominated world. And because of her age, Naomi is not likely to remarry. She has no trade or means of support. All exits were closed. It was dark. Not just raining, it was pouring. And we know she was asking to herself, because we're going to see her faith come through in the next couple weeks. You know she's asking herself, where is God in this situation? Where is he? When God does not meet our expectations, when life happens in ways that we never thought would and leaves us in the depths, in the darkness, it can do one of two things. First one is to open the door to things like despair. Will it ever get fixed? Will it ever be right? Will I ever get it back? Is life always going to be this hopeless? It can open the door to despair. It can open the door to cynicism. Of course this happened to me. We start recounting all the, the hardship and struggles and losses we've had in life and we become cynical and bitter. We can shut down and practically give up on life. It can open the door to those things when our expectations aren't met. Or, or it can do something else. When our life, when our lives fall apart, there is still hope. We read next what they do in verses 6 through 7, the choice to continue on. Verse 6, then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So we see the choice to continue on. Naomi's choice to continue on was to go continue her life in Judah, to go back to Bethlehem, to go back to where she's from, to the promised land. And then we see the choice of Orpah and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, to continue their lives with her. They both seem to make that decision in the beginning. So first, Naomi's choice to continue her life in Judah. In verse 6, it says, she arose. And I think there's a lot packed into those two words. After going through what she just went through, what does she do? She arose. Her dreams were shattered. Her life had fallen apart. Her world had stopped, but the world itself kept spinning. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Her world stopped, but the world kept on going. And she's doing about all that you could expect someone in her sandals to do, and that is to hang in there, put one foot in front of the other, keep going. She arose, and she walked back to Bethlehem. Have you been in a situation where it's not just raining, it's pouring, and all you can do is hang in there? All you can do is put one foot in front of the other. I was thinking of my own life and reading this and preparing this, and I thought, of a, I thought of a time in grad school where I was going through a difficult time and one of my professors noticed and said, would you like to get breakfast or lunch or whatever it was, and I still to this day just appreciate that. Brought me out to, to breakfast or lunch, and I don't remember most of the conversation, but I remember one thing that he said when I was talking about why I was struggling and what to do from there. 
He said, do you know what you're going to do tomorrow? I said, what? He said, you're going to brush your teeth. You're going to put your shoes on. You're going to get done what you need to get done. And you're going to keep going. He was saying, you're going to keep going. One day at a time. One foot in front of the other. Sometimes that's all you can do. And that's okay. And even when there's no sign of hope, no sign of that circumstance changing, no sign of the end of that suffering tunnel, you keep walking. And by itself, if we stop right there, there's no hope in that. It's just keep going, you know, good luck. But the reason that there's hope is because God was in this story and God is in our story. There's hope because we have a God of hope. She heard, here's what it says, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord had visited his people. This week leading up to today, our tribe met, our small group, and somebody pointed out, you know, I think, I think what really gave her hope there wasn't just, it wasn't the food that was in Bethlehem. It was the fact that God had visited his people. There's the first sign of life, the first sign of resurrection. She's been going down that J-curve, that death to self, and a circumstance that she didn't want against her will. And the first sign of life, the first sign of hope, the first sign of resurrection, that it wouldn't stay like that forever, was because God had visited his people. Hints of resurrection. We live in a world in which God is active. We are not deists believing that God created the world and then stepped back. He didn't create the watch and all its mechanisms and then just watch it go. He is actively involved, not just in creating the world and each one of us, but in sustaining us moment by moment, day by day. God is active. He's going to show us, reveal to us what that next step is, what that next day holds as we walk with him one step at a time. He's active in our lives. He doesn't leave us. He will bring people. He will bring circumstances. He will bring that hints of that next chapter in our life when we think there's no hope, no turning the corner. God is alive. God is active. She heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And in order for us to grow when we're walking through the dark moments, seasons, chapters of our life, when we're walking through that valley of the shadow of death on the bottom of the J-curve, in order for our love to grow, we have to refuse to give in to the seductive call of bitterness, of giving up, of cynicism, but instead to hang in there with the story that God has given, permitted in our lives, looking to him, enduring, and knowing that he's going to show up, even when it doesn't make sense. And we're going to learn to love along the way. The choice to continue on. She arose. Then we see Ruth and Orpah's choice to continue their lives with Naomi. And this, this is a monumental decision that it seems both of their daughters, her daughters-in-law are making. They're saying, we're going to leave our home we're going to leave any family they had in, in Moab. They're going to leave their cultural context. They're going to leave any networks they had, social networks. They're going to leave all of it, and they're going to travel with their mother-in-law, Naomi. And here's another cultural fact here. In the traditional Eastern cultures, the daughter-in-law would be the servant of her mother-in-law. 
And unfortunately, that often led to unhealthy and some abusive relationships. And so what's revealing here in that Orpah and Ruth are saying, we're going with you, Naomi, is that Naomi must have been an incredible person of incredible character that they would choose to go with her. I often, just personal note, I've gone through Ruth a few times in the past, and I just, I didn't get much out of it. And I read a little bit about Naomi, and I thought, I just ha- I didn't have the highest view of her. And there's a few times uh, Anna, my wife, has said to me, you know, Ru- Naomi's gonna come up to you in heaven if you keep talking to her about her that way. <laughs> and you're gonna see, and she's right. Because when I take my time and go through this book, <laughs> to go through Ruth, and see some of the hints here that I missed completely. <laughs> I'm beginning to realize the kind of quality, faith, character, and person Naomi was. Ruth and Orpah decide to go with her. And it speaks volumes about her character. So they, they both, they all three of them, make decisions to go on, to continue on. Naomi goes back. She's saying, I'm going back to Bethlehem. The Lord had visited his people. At the time, Ruth and Orpah are saying, we're going with you. We're leaving all of this behind in their home and their place and their, their families and networks. They go on. Yes, it was not just raining. It was pouring in all three of their lives. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it seems as if the, 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 the downward spiral kept going. And we may ask ourselves at times in our lives, can it get any worse when it rains? It pours. And yet, we have a God who is active and alive in this world. And we have a Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went deeper, who went further down than any of us ever will, who allowed the sins of the whole world to drag him all the way to the bottomless pit to pay for our sins, to endure the wrath of God for us, he understands. And he doesn't leave us, no matter how dark or deep that tunnel seems to go. No matter what the losses are, he's with us. And he brings, as he always does, life resurrection, hope. And he brings us higher than we ever would have if we didn't go through that valley of the shadow of death. So as we take communion today and we celebrate what Christ has done, breaking his body, shedding his blood for us, I want to point out a word that I pointed out earlier (laughs) and be thinking about this as we take communion today. Ruth means friend. And through this story, she's going to help us see that with God as our friend, we can handle anything. With God as our friend, she will help us see that in a world of broken relationships, of broken expectations, there is a friend that we sang about (laughs) that sticks closer than a brother or a sister or a parent or a spouse or anyone else. God is the most wonderful friend we can have. And even when life doesn't show it, and even when we tend to not believe it, and when it's not just raining but pouring, God is worth the wait. Let's pray. Lord, we are digging into a story that starts off unbelievably dark and bleak. 
and what looks like a completely hopeless situation. Lord, help us see these women of faith and the choices they made and how all throughout the story it points to you, your faithfulness, and your selfless love. God, I pray that we're able to better understand what you've revealed, your story of redemption, in this case study of love. Help us, God, enjoy to die to ourselves, to wait for you, because you are more than worth the wait. Speak to us, Lord, as we go through Ruth. Lead our church. Make us more like you. Amen.